And welcome back to Livingston Parish News Weekly Show, a podcast brought to you by the Livingston Parish News. My name is McHugh David, publisher and editor of the news, and we have a special guest today. Kind of a last-minute appointment, but glad she had the time. She's going around Livingston Parish. We'll ask her a little more about that, but we're here Monday, September 11th. I hope you remember where you were, my goodness, 22 years ago. So if you'll please take a second to introduce yourself and uh, tell us, you know, uh, what seat you're running for. Thanks, McHugh. I'm Liz Merle, and I'm running for Attorney General, and I'm I'm glad you um, reminded us of what an important day it is today. You know, I mean, we do need to pause and think. It's hard to believe that was 22 years ago. It is. I uh, I I got up this morning and thought to myself, it's something feels a little different about today. I got in, and my wife goes, "We have to say something about September 11th because there are a couple of programs and stuff going on in the parish." I said, oh, "That's what I forgot." Uh, so it's always good to you know, have those posts on social media, people in your life who tell you, please remember, you know, we don't, we don't want to fear it, but we need to remember it. So let's get back to you. Uh, As you said, you're running for attorney general. We'll ask you uh, why in just a little bit, but I want to get to know you first. Uh, So why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, the bare bones, family, that kind of thing, what you like to do for fun. Well, I am married to another lawyer. We've been married for 30 years. My husband, John, and I have four sons, and our oldest son has recently turned 30, and our youngest son is 19, going on 20. Uh, You know, our our third son was three when uh, 9-11 happened, so you you think about that just in terms of where you were that day, but I remember being in my kitchen with my three-year-old, but... Uh, it, yeah, so we live in Baton Rouge now. I grew up in Lafayette and lived most of my life there and then came to LSU undergrad and uh, left for a little while after I got my journalism degree at LSU to be a newspaper reporter. Hey, welcome home. That's right. And then I came back here to go to law school. Okay. Okay. And how, how long did you practice law before you moved into the attorney general's office? Well, I think I had been practicing for 25 years when I came into the attorney general's office. Okay. I uh, I came out of law school and clerked in federal court and in the state appellate courts for about five years. I worked and um, and you know started a family, but I, I taught at the law school for 12 years. I worked in the general administration for six years um, in government. I, I did a Supreme Court fellowship in Washington, D.C. for a year. Um, in between working in the general administration and and teaching, and you know, so I've been I've been out for a while. I was I've done a lot of activities um, with the state bar and the local bar. I've worked on uh, some disaster recovery relief pro bono projects with my church and with the bar association. You can do a lot of things when you've been in practice for thirty years. Sure, sure. You you kind of earned that clout. You got a little time. Yeah. You know, give back. So, what drew you to the attorney general's office? You know, I've always been drawn to the AG's office. I've been there now for almost eight years um, working with uh, Jeff Landry and really setting up our whole Solicitor General operation. But and we could talk some more about that in a minute. Um, But what what has drawn me there from the beginning was just how critically important the AG is in terms of fighting for our state and fighting for liberty. And so we always need to have an attorney general who is willing to go out and fight for things like free speech. Um, you know, we've we've been in a big fight with the federal government over censoring our speech. And and I've also got a big lawsuit pending right now against FEMA on their flood program, on the NFIP program. We've got 48 
parishes that are involved in that suit and 12 levy boards and a couple of municipalities and 10 states. Okay. So, you know, I think what I've always felt is that the role and the job is very, very important in terms of your legal leadership for the state, fighting for the people, fighting for the state itself, and above all else, fighting for our constitutional rights. Right. And so uh, your job title is Solicitor General, right? It's got the word general in its name, so people are immediately going to perk up. Uh, give us, you know, brief description about what you do on a day-to-day basis. You know, the top the top role of the job is to watch out for our state's interests in the United States Supreme Court. And that's why I've been afforded the opportunity now to argue five times in the United States Supreme Court. Uh, but but it really goes well beyond that because the overall role is to kind of watch out for our state's interests and our people's interests, particularly as it relates to federal overreach. Um, I have also used this job and my role to reach out to the district attorneys statewide and assist them in their cases that were going up to the United States Supreme Court. So I act as a central hub for monitoring and taking over all those cases from them. We reach out and volunteer to handle those cases for them. And I've worked on over 250 cases with the DAs around the state now in the last probably six to seven years. Um, That'll give you an idea of how many times people are going to the United States Supreme Court I was just about to say that's 40 to 45 a year. That's right. And so they're asking the Supreme Court to take up these cases and change criminal law for the entire country. And so it's, you know, anytime we have a case that's pending up there, we need to take it seriously. We need to deal with it and um, put our best foot forward. And so the Solicitor General's office allows us to have a team of people who routinely practice in the United States Supreme Court and can bring that experience and expertise to everybody else in the state who's facing those kinds of uh, cases. Sure. So uh, before we even get into why you're running, you brought up uh, two particular issues uh, that I think strike home. One of them strikes home for me, of course, and the other one strikes home for pretty much anyone that lives south of Alexandria, which is uh, the NFIP and FEMA. So, uh, you know, and out of 250 some odd cases, as you said, these two stuck out to you. You brought them up. First and foremost, tell us a little bit about what's going on uh, with your defense of free speech and the uh, First Amendment. So last week we had a huge victory. Uh, the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit, that's a federal appellate court, upheld an injunction that we obtained against a the White House and, and, and uh, the Department of Health and Hospitals and a whole bunch of federal actors who had been working together to censor people's speech. So I'll give you an example of the kinds of speech that they were censoring. Um, one of my sons was act, actually had an adverse reaction to the COVID uh, vaccine. He, he had it in advance of going to be a camp counselor. Um, he had myocarditis that really was the very first case that was identified in our state as a teenage young adult male with, um, with myocarditis. He was in the hospital for a week. And I have spoken in ICU, and I've spoken a lot about that experience And my experience with watching um, speech being taken down or um, canceled where people were were exercising their rights to say, hey, be careful, this could be harmful and this is a low risk group and hey, the numbers are higher than we thought. Um, And I've talked about my personal experience with that. That's the kind of speech that the White House was taking down and that Dr. Fauci was taking down because they didn't want it to contribute to vaccine hesitancy. Now, think about that. It was true. 
It was a personal, true experience, and it's protected speech under the First Amendment. And the White House was telling the big tech platforms, take it down. So that's a direct violation of the First Amendment. The, 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 the White House cannot use other parties like you or your newspaper. I mean, most newspapers would be appalled if, if the White House called and said, hey, we know what you're printing is true, but you should take it down because we don't like it. Right. For example, Hunter Biden's laptop. We don't like it. We think it's, um, it's you know, not good for people to talk about that, or we think it's some Russian disinformation thing. The fact is they knew that it was true, and the White House actually engaged in an operation to not have people talk about it and to have the tech platforms take it down and deplatform that speech and censor it, um, which affected the election. So you think about the White House and the federal government in a broad enterprise exercising its powers to reach out and tell corporate entities, especially those that disseminate speech and news, what they can and can't say and threatening them in the process or, and gaining their cooperation through those threats. I mean, it's a terrible threat to democracy. It's a hugely important case, and we were really glad to see the Fifth Circuit for the most part, affirmed our injunction. You think it'll go any further? Oh, absolutely. I okay. think it's going up to the United States Supreme Court. So it'll be interesting to follow that. Uh, jumping over to something that I think uh, also is an important uh, piece of being a homeowner, uh, just being a citizen of Louisiana, anywhere south of Alexandria, as I said, but especially here. Uh, we're pretty cognizant of the NFIP, flood insurance itself, dealing with FEMA since 2016. Tell us a little bit about how you're dealing with them. So, you know, interesting, very interesting case, very, uh, probably the most important case to individuals in our state and locally to our parishes and, and just has so many tentacles across the state um, because we have a lot of programs and federal money that we've handed out. And every one of those programs requires you to agree to keep flood insurance on your home. So if you took elevation money or you took road home money or anything like that, it attaches a requirement to the property, it goes with the property. It doesn't just end when you sell your house. It goes to the next person who tries to buy your house. So um, the NFI, the flood insurance um, rates have been dramatically changed. The Biden administration calls this uh, risk 2.0 equity in action. I call it inequity in action because it's literally causing people to lose their homes. And, uh, and we've got a lot of examples of that. We have a hearing on Thursday. Um, in federal court in New Orleans, where we've asked a court to enjoin the government from implementing Risk 2.0 and basically return us to the legacy program and the legacy rates, or at least to reinstate the grandfathered in contract rates, which would protect a lot of people who were experiencing like a thousand percent increase in their flood insurance rates. And just to sort of put a finer tip on it, if you have a mortgage you have to keep flood insurance, especially if you're in a special flood zone that FEMA identifies. So they create the maps. They create the regulation that says you've got to have this insurance if you're in this zone. The bank then has to enforce it. And now they're changing on, on they're, they're pulling the rug out from everybody, jacking up the rates without any consideration whatsoever for what this does to people economically. It is devastating to our communities. Right. And a lot of rewriting of the protocol as well. I mean, it used to be that 
uh, it was federally mandated that they could only raise rates by a certain percentage per year. Right. And then suddenly people started getting bills that were, as as you even said, five, ten times as much as that mandated rate. So. Well, and part of the sticker shock. Yeah. So part of the reason is because they say they're getting rid of subsidies. What they're getting rid of are elements of the program that made the insurance affordable for people. And one of the obligations of the government when when Congress created the program and told FEMA to implement it was to make it reasonable and accessible. The whole point is to have people actually participate. If they've made it so expensive that you can't participate anymore and you actually have the freedom to say no, you're not going to buy it at all. Right. So it, it actually ends up having the, the effect that they didn't want, and that is to have people pull out of the program, which, again, lowers the pool of money that's there to pay for claims at the end. Um, which it's, a bad, it's just a bad deal. And FEMA's acknowledged it's a terrible program. They've just refused to go back and change it. Right. That's even more annoying. Right. One of those <laughs> legacy uh, government bureaucratic processes that would take actual effort to fix. Yeah. Uh, so we... Two high-profile cases that you're involved in. Let's talk about why you want to run. So you're running for attorney general, statewide office. You're currently the solicitor general in that office. Tell us why you're running. You know, I'm I'm running so that I can I can keep doing the work that I'm doing, protecting the rights of our people. I've done a lot of work, I think, on the criminal side and on the civil side to protect our people. Um, our rights, whether it's the Constitution that we are out out fighting for, um, state or federal, or it's to prevent um, rampant crime and, and oppose criminal policies that are being implemented through the judiciary. The attorney general's office is involved in all of that. We have another case pending this week where we're going up to the Fifth Circuit to try and enjoin a, a federal judge in Baton Rouge who's trying to handcuff us on how we manage juveniles in the juvenile justice system. So the attorney general's office is involved in all of those things, and I've been involved in all of those things, and I want to continue to provide the kind of leadership that, um, and professionalism that we've created a path for in that office. So in your case, typically with interviews like this, I ask people, how has your work experience prepared you to run or to, if, should you be elected uh, to run the actual office, not just to run for it, but to actually run it? Uh, I'll give you just a minute to to say your piece if you want to, but I believe the first roughly 13 minutes of this interview <laughs> explained that. Uh, but if you'd like to take just a second to say why you believe, compared to, you don't even have to compare yourself to another candidate, just why you believe you're the right choice. Yeah, I just don't think anybody else has the experience, both in life and as in legal um, experience, as I do, as I bring to the table. I have been fighting for us. Uh, for a very long time. I want to keep doing that. And uh, and nobody else has the kind of experience that I have and, and brings it to the table. So I'm, I'm hoping that the voters are going to, going to want to let me keep fighting for them. Let's talk a little bit about the office itself. Uh, you know, obviously you're well uh, acclimated with how it runs on a day-to-day basis. Uh, first, we'll talk about, we'll do the good news, bad news kind of thing. First, the good news. In your mind, what are some of the things that uh, you feel y'all do well that you absolutely want to hold on to? You know, there are a lot of things. There are the, most people don't really realize the breadth and scope of the attorney general's office. We issue 250 opinions a year to local governments, um, which help them avoid litigation and solve problems, carry out economic development projects, and keep moving forward. That's a very important aspect of what we do. We have an Internet Crimes Against Children unit, very high-tech 
um, highly trained group of people that that go after predators um, who are preying on children uh, and creating and trafficking pornography with children in it. Um, very important work that they do. I'm really proud of the work that they do. It's sad that they never run out of work, and we really need to expand that operation. Um, and that's just, you know, a, a terrible thing to have to acknowledge that society can be so depraved that they um, that this is a huge, uh, hugely important thing that we do in our office and we never run out of uh, cases to pursue. So I think that's very important and I'm proud of the work that we do. Um, we support the DAs and I think that's a really important role that we have. And I expect to um, work with the DAs. I already do work closely with the DAs uh, and supporting them in prosecuting crime across our state. And um, and we provide support for them with recusals. I think we can provide support for them in breaking up backlogs and so that they can move move people's cases through. Because at the end of the day, victims want to see justice. Um, they need to see it not, you know, justice. Sometimes the wheels of justice do move slowly, but we can make them move at the proper pace as long as we have the right resources there. So we need to support the DAs in doing that. Okay. And on the other side, you know, everybody brings their strengths and their weaknesses and stuff to the job. Um, from your perspective, what is uh, something that you believe that uh, maybe doesn't even necessarily have to be something that y'all could do better? It could be something that you want to do that's entirely different. Y'all maybe haven't had the bandwidth for it yet or something like that. So when you're looking at the AG's office, what's something you think you could do new or better? So financial crimes. I think that's something that we've seen a vast expansion of. Um, there's this kind of gap between uh, what the FBI and bigger organ, you know, criminal investigations and, and, and organizations can attack uh, and then our ability to address those problems. So I'll give you an example um, of the kinds of scams and things that affect people and where they have a hard time getting assistance. I, I ran into a lady one day um, who, and I was in the Quantum Express near my house, and she just came in and she was in, she was pretty upset, and I was listening to her talk to the owner. She had been scammed basically by a guy who was, per, per, who was pretending to be an FTC official, and he had convinced her, he had actually sent her a picture of an ID of someone who really works there, um, she believed it long enough to go and get $250,000 of, of her, all the money she had in her entire savings, put it in a cashier's check, and mail it to the address that he gave it to her through UPS in a cashier's check. That's like putting cash in an envelope and mailing it to somebody because once it gets to them, you can't get it back. Right. And so I happened to be there at the moment that she was trying to get this package stopped, and she couldn't get it stopped because UPS had the other guy on the other end saying that she was the scammer and the FBI, we could, she couldn't even get them on the phone because it wasn't enough money to get their attention. But it was $250,000 and sure. it was her entire life savings. And so I asked her, have you called the attorney general's office? And she said, no. I said, well, let me see if I can help. And I put her in touch with our investigations unit. And within 10 minutes, they had reached security at UPS and given them the information that this was a credible complaint. They had stopped. The package was out for delivery, and they had stopped it and returned it, had it returned back to her. But we see these kind of financial crimes. They are um, People are exploited in so many different ways now, whether it's through your computer or your phone or some other, you know, 
duplicitous way to get your money out of your pocket and into theirs, um, they are exploiting people. And I think that we need to be able to expand our cybercrime unit to hit financial crimes. And that cybercrime unit is currently focused on what you discussed earlier, which involves children. But you, uh, and just want to make sure I clarify, uh, you want to expand that to include financial uh, crimes, which, you know, taking it one step further, uh, who would they be participating with? Because one of the things you, you brought up to me, which was very interesting just now, is 250 doesn't move the needle for the FBI. So who would they be liaising with? Or would they be kind of their own unit? Uh, well, our group would, would, as they do now, they would work together with state police. They would work together with other organizations. Sometimes they may work with banks. Banks have uh, investigations units that actually pursue this kind of thing. Um, you know, I think that, that it is important to network with all of the people who are trying to prevent cybercrime, um, which can occur in a lot of different ways. But we do have a couple of people that focus on financial crimes, but we need more because we just see how uh, how many people are being exploited by it. So, um, yeah, we would partner with other organizations and law enforcement around the state. But I think the real value of a team like that uh, is that they can provide support to all law enforcement around the state, to the sheriffs, to the chiefs of police in towns and cities, um, because it's very hard to keep to hire and keep people like that with that skill set. If you are a, a sheriff in a rural parish, you need a guy who's a Swiss Army knife in terms of a cop, right? You need someone who can investigate the whole wide scope of crimes that occur. Um, if you are focusing on cybercrime, you need somebody who understands how the Internet works um, in a, and can actually pursue uh, criminal operations that may even involve the algorithms that are created that are driving the traffic. It can it can end up catching up with the FBI and larger organizations because a lot of this is organized crime that comes from international sources and then links into more local networks. Okay. Well, that makes sense, especially uh, since most people have gotten to the point where if you pick up the phone and it's someone who doesn't sound like they speak English fluently, you tend to hang up. So That's I right. Get, well, I, and if they call and say, you know, Grandma, this is this is Jonathan. I, I'm I'm in the hospital. I need some help. And don't don't call mom or or I'm in jail. I got arrested. I need you to help me out. And I don't want you to call mom or dad. I mean, those are usually scams. Right. And um, I, I think you had mentioned it earlier, but uh, criminals adapt too, and so having a team would allow you to kind of continue to adapt to meet new challenges. So let's talk about you for a second. Um, you know, you've been the Solicitor General, you've had all this experience uh, as an attorney, uh, and in some cases, some management experience as well. As you run for this office, should you be elected, what's something about yourself that you feel like you would have to adapt to or change uh, to become the Attorney General? That's a great question. I think, uh, you know, I love going to court. I love being in court. I love working hands-on with my team. Uh, I think the hardest thing for me is stepping back and um, and because it is we have seven divisions in the office. And so I think being attorney general requires you to manage all of those teams and and you can still be involved in certain things in a detailed way. But you are more of a of a bigger picture manager and um, and you've got to empower. You got to hire good people and then you got to empower them to go out and do the job that you hired them to do. And uh, I do love being in court. I have always loved being a lawyer. 
Um, I love the work that I do defending the state and the people of our state. Uh, and so, you know, letting letting people go out and and take a take the front runner role that I might have otherwise um, been, you know, standing at the podium arguing, you got to let them get up there and do it. Sure. And that was going to kind of be my follow up question is, how is it going to feel to have to put someone in your position? It's hard sometimes, you know, I mean, it's hard to let go of those things. But I think that when you hire good people, you know, and I taught for 12 years at LSU Law School, that's the job is to mentor talent. You find talent, um, then you provide good training and support for those people and you let them do their jobs. And I, I think that that's what I would seek um, to do is to make sure that we're hiring good people who are as committed and devoted to defending our people in our state as I am um, and who want to be better. That, to me, is always part of my job growing as an attorney and as a, over the years in my profession was always trying to be better. And so I would expect anybody I hire to have that same uh, mentality. Sure, sure. Uh, so as we kind of approach the end here, uh, just a general question, uh, what are you doing in Livingston Parish today? Just visiting a lot of folks. I'm going around and talking to to everybody that I can. I'm going to make some rounds at the courthouse and visit some folks over at the school board and just introduce myself. And uh, I think at the end of the day, the Republican Parish Executive Committee is meeting, and I'll stop and uh, see them after that and ask them to endorse me. Oh, there you go. Ed, yeah. Won't do it if you don't ask, right? Yeah. Uh, so if you'd like to take a minute or two to close out, to say anything you felt like I didn't ask uh, or answer a question you feel like I didn't ask and uh, reintroduce yourself as we head on out. Well, thank you. I'm just glad to be here in Livingston Parish. And um, I live nearby. And so I know that, that there are a lot of really, really good people who live in this parish who are devoted to America and justice and liberty. And those are all the things that I fight for. And I hope that I'll be able to stand with you as your attorney general. And, of course, uh, early voting starts in just two weeks. It's right here on top of us. Uh, it starts. It feels so early this it's year. It's moving fast. I think it's because it's been so hot this summer that you can't feel any gap. <laughs> right. It's like, it, you know, we got to 95. It finally feels cool enough to go do stuff. And, and before you know it, it'll be fall. Um, so, of course, election is October 14th. Early voting starts in about two weeks. We do appreciate you taking the time to stop by with us. If you'll reintroduce yourself, please. Liz Merle, Solicitor General for the state of Louisiana, running to be your attorney general. And my name is McHugh David, publisher and editor of the news. Appreciate you guys for listening in or watching. Uh, this is the Livingston Parish News Weekly Show. Please remember the news is on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube. Once a week in print on Thursdays. That's $7 a month to get that in your mailbox. Also online, www.livingstonparishnews.com. One more time, I want to thank this lady for stopping by. Statewide races are not easy, not a whole lot of time, but good luck as you go around Livingston Parish. And for those of you listening and watching, we'll see you next time.